be reading a very familiar passage, so it's easy to miss the magnitude of it. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give my possessions to feed the poor and I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, as I have also been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Heavenly Father, as we read these words, we all fall short. And the only time we are right in this area is when we are like Jesus because of Jesus. <laughs> when we're like you because of what you've given and done. When we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in the new man, not the old. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. Thank you that in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we see your perfect love. Help us, Father, to listen to your words this morning and speak to our hearts in ways that we are not obedient in this and transform us into your image. For it's in your Son we pray. Amen. I pray with all my heart that God will, that God will use this passage in your hearts the way he's been using it in mine. Uh, this is profound, profound truth. Uh, this morning and the next two Sundays after this, Lord willing, we will camp out in Paul's four-verse declaration regarding what love does and what love does not do. Uh, if you and I desire the practical godliness that God is, promises that He is at work to continually work into us and work out through us as His redeemed children, then, then verses 4-7 through seven of 1 Corinthians 13 are bedrock. They are bedrock for us. In chapter 12, Paul explained to us the Holy Spirit's purpose for giving and distributing special spiritual gifts, gifts of enablement to every single child of God for the building up of the church. We learned in that chapter that the gifts of the Spirit are, are given to specially and supernaturally equip each individual child for that, for that building up, that every individual part must work together for the body to be effective as God intends. The gifts of the Spirit are 
given to produce enablement, equipping. The fruit of the Spirit is given to produce godliness. There's a difference between enablement and godliness. Our godliness is an infinitely higher priority to God than our enablement. In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, the first facet of the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit is singular, it's all one package. The first facet of the fruit of the Spirit is godly love, agape. Everything else, every other facet of that very same fruit of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit produces in the life of the child of God, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control flows from the, from the sine qua non, the without which not. Okay? Everything else flows from love, from godly love. Without godly love, there's no godliness. Without godly love, you and I are nullified. We are canceled out. Paul says we are nothing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how equipped we are if we do not have love. That's the problem that Paul was specifically addressing in the Corinthian church. The creativity of our sin is stunning sometimes, right? That the Corinthians could take spiritual gifts and use them for division is stunning. But that's what was going on. The Corinthians were exercising the gifts of the Spirit in a way that violated and canceled out the fruit of the Spirit. And the casualty, beloved, was godliness. And the result was uselessness. Having declared godly love to be the, the without which not of our godliness, usefulness, and significance, Paul now tells us what that godly love does and does not do. And again, we'll, we'll spend the next three Sundays, this one and two more, looking at just those four verses that deal with that matter. Now before I launch in the, into the first part of that declaration, I need to, need to tell you that there's one ground rule that I, I pray will govern and direct our response to these verses. My brother really, he just said it in his prayer. Uh, and that is that we don't produce fruit by trying to produce fruit. The fruit only comes when we abide in the vine. He, he said, it's only if Jesus does this in us that it happens. And that's, that's, that's foundational. If our response to the powerful exhortation that is implicit in these four verses is just to ramp up our navel-gazing, no correction is going to happen. We'll just be wasting our time and effort. You and I will not become better lovers of God and of people by resolving to be better lovers of God and of people. We will become better lovers of God and of men only when our attention, our affection, our adoration, and our submission are turned to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So my intent this morning and the next two Sundays is to repeatedly, with every point that's made, take it back 
to Jesus. Point us back to Jesus. In verses 4-7, through Paul personifies love. Much as Solomon personifies wisdom in the first couple of chapters of Proverbs. In other words, what, when Paul talks about what love does, he of course means this is what the person who lives out godly love does. There are 15 characteristics of agape love in verses 4 through 7. And there's another, another one in the transitional verse, which is the first part of verse 8, 8a. So, 16 characteristics. They're all presented as verbs. <laughs> now, if you look at it in most of your English translations, you might think the first three are adjectives. Love is patient. Love is kind. Okay? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not... All of a sudden, I lost it. All right. <laughs> not jealous is, is where I think that goes first. It is no coincidence... It is no coincidence that the two pos- the first two, the positives, before he gets into, the, into the, the things that love is not, the first two that love is are in the same list of the facets of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? Love, that's the anchor, then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These two characteristics of godly love are inseparable from love. (laughs) And they are active. And hence my subheading, the first subheading, if I can get this to work, is that love forbears in kindness. Love forbears in kindness. The New King James renders the the phrase love is patient as love suffers long. Now you don't don't hear the word long-suffering much these days, but it's really a great way to, to express what this word means. Uh, a woodenly literal translation of the Greek verb used here would be long of temper. Long of temper. We know what it means to be short-tempered, right? <laughs> this, this attribute is, it means long of temper. And, it, um, and the idea here is that the outburst of temper that godly love holds off, that it doesn't carry out, would be legitimate. It would be a legitimate outburst of temper, of anger. Most of our anger isn't righteous anger. James says that the anger of man does not accomplish or cause as an outcome the righteousness of God. But what Paul is saying here is that even if it did, even when another person's behavior would justify an angered response from us that reflects God's righteous hatred of that other person's sin, godly love doesn't go there quickly. Godly love doesn't go there quickly. Godly love doesn't pounce. If you've raised kids, this is a challenge. Godly love forbears even when the other person gives it no reason to forbear. Now, considering that one of the attributes that God declares of Himself in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, when Moses asked Him to, to show Him His glory, and He didn't get to see the physical glory, He got to hear the glory of God's character proclaimed. And God said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast covenant love and truth. Considering that that God declares that about Himself, it should not surprise us that godly love 
withholds the trouncing that another person deserves and instead treats that other person kindly. And when we throw into the mix, of course, that the trouncing that every one of us deserves from God, this should be a no-brainer. Agape love lived out by one redeemed sinner toward another redeemed sinner. It doesn't just count to 10 before exploding. It doesn't explode. Okay? Instead, it treats the other person kindly. The word kind shouldn't need a lot of explaining. Uh, it occurs over and over in the New Testament. Very often together with words like gentle, patient, merciful, tender-hearted, forgiving, to act kindly is to bless and not to curse. It is to build up and not to tear down. It is to encourage and not discourage. To de-escalate conflict and enmity and not to escalate. We love others the way God has loved us in Christ. If you read the Gospels and you look carefully at how Jesus dealt with the persistent foolishness and self-centeredness of his own beloved disciples, you'll get a master class in love that shows forbearance and kindness <laughs> to undeserving sinners. In Matthew 8, Jesus' disciples questioned his care for them because he didn't wake up quickly enough to save them from a storm that looked like it was about to capsize their boat. In Matthew 16, Peter, who always said what the other disciples were thinking, rebuked Jesus for saying that he had to be killed and raised up on the third day. In Matthew 20, as, as they approached Jerusalem for what, what would be the last time in Jesus' earthly ministry, he again told all the disciples that he would shortly be delivered up to be executed and to be raised on the third day. <laughs> without even acknowledging what he had just said, that, that earth-shattering thing that he had just said, James and John came to him with their mother and they said, give us the best seats in the kingdom of God. In John 13, Peter, again saying what all the disciples were thinking, rebuked Jesus, this time for demeaning himself by washing the disciples' feet. After his arrest, all of his disciples abandoned him. It's interesting, the only ones that didn't were the women. But the disciples, they left. They scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Just as the prophets had foretold. Peter denied Jesus with curses that same night to protect his physical life just as Jesus had told him he would do. But beloved, Jesus never failed to forbear toward His disciples in matchless grace and patient kindness. Why? Because He loved them with a love that has its source in Him, in Jesus. John 13.1 says, Jesus, knowing that His hour... And by the way, this is the introduction to the upper room discourse. The last... The, the time together with the, the disciples in that upper room on the night that Jesus was, was arrested. Jesus, knowing that His hour had come that He should depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. That word end to to last, it means perfection. To the end of whatever. Okay? To the end of His life, to the end His physical life, to the end of their physical lives, to the end of the earth, to the end of anything. Jesus loved them. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that it was because of God's great agape, God's great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. <laughs> and Joe read this this morning. That's why I knew what passage he was going to. That He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come He might show us the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Think about it. The God who knew every word we would ever speak before we even existed, the God who knew every deed that we would do before we ever existed, has been forbearing in kindness toward you and me since before the foundation of the world. When He wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life, And He continues in that forbearing kindness every day of our lives in and through Christ. You and I know how to love others by looking at Jesus and by doing toward others what He has done toward us. That's always the answer, guys. When the question is, how must I love another person? The answer is always, How has Christ loved you? Do that. Ephesians 4, verse 32-5-2. Listen to what Paul presents as the standard for forgiveness, for love. He says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a soothing, fragrant aroma. See, there's really really no mystery here. To know how God has commissioned us and enabled us to treat others, all we need to do is pay very close attention to how He has treated us in Christ, and still treats us. I say this all the time, but I know that I give God cause to be done with me every day of my life. But it's not going to happen, is it? He says He will never leave us or forsake us. It's not because of us. It's amazing how easily and how often, and I definitely include myself here, how easily and how often we justify an impatient, unkind response to another person, even to a fellow child of God, because we're convinced that we're acting in God's place. That we're rightly demonstrating God's hatred of sin. We're standing up for righteousness. Whether it's a struggle that someone's having with doubt, a struggle with anxiety, or anger, or lust, or laziness, or materialism, or even a doctrinal error. 
Someone in our midst says or does something that we're convinced God would not approve of, so we take up our our whack-a-mole mallet of righteous indignation. You know that one piece of armor that Paul forgot to mention in Ephesians 6? And we go about smiting every offender with the mallet of our self-righteous zeal. And we do so with the time urgency sometimes that leaves no room at all for waiting on God to do His good work in that other person's heart. In a way that places very little priority on and allows no time for humble, earnest prayer for God to intervene in that person's heart. Guys, this is something God has been working on me about a great deal, especially over about the last year. Is teaching me, reminding me, I'm not here to fix people. That's not my job. I need to pray for people. I need to speak the truth in love. But, but if I take it upon myself to change another person's walk with God or their righteousness, all I'm going to do is mess things up. And my timetable, it, it just never matches up with God's. Never! The freedom to deal patiently and kindly with the failures and errors and sins of others comes from trusting God and not ourselves. He alone is sovereign over that other person's heart. You and I will never be. And parents, that includes the hearts of your children. Forbearing in kindness while we prayerfully wait on the Lord to do the hard work of heart work that we can never do should be the very core of our normal response to the failures that we detect in other people. We don't pray enough. After presenting the two positive outworkings of godly love, patience and kindness, Paul then launches into a list of things that godly love does not do. All of the love does not statements in the second part of verse 4 I think can be summed up in the principle that love does not exalt self. Paul says first that love is not jealous, or in some translations, it does not envy. And I think that's actually a better rendering here. This is the same word that Paul uses in chapters 12 and 14, in other words, on both ends of this chapter, when he exhorts the Corinthian saints to desire earnestly the greater spiritual gifts. It's the Greek word from which we get the English word zeal. It speaks of of a fervent, zealous longing for something. Now, you and I can have a zeal for something good, or we can have a zeal for something bad. What Paul's talking about here is something bad. James speaks of the same sin that Paul addresses here when he reveals in James chapter 4 the cause of enmity and arguments between believers. James 4 verses 1 through 3 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's a good question, right? Let me read it again. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, 
so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Envy resents the fact that someone else has what it zealously wants. See, envy is discontent zeroed in on a target. And the target is any person who has what we're convinced we need and don't have. Envy is a grievous violation of godly self-denying love. For the believer, the discontent that produces envy can only exist if we don't believe that God is actually providing everything that we need day by day. Envy among Christians is a particularly ugly thing. It resents blessings given to others. Blessings that should produce rejoicing instead of bitterness. Perhaps the gift that is resented is another couple's richly blessed marriage when yours isn't very good. Perhaps it's the godly walk of another person's children. Perhaps it's the physical provision that God has given to another family. Perhaps it's the joy that a brother or sister displays when joy seems so elusive to you. When such things pr produce resentment in the heart of the child of God, godly love has been replaced by destructive envy. If any man ever had justifiable reason to resent blessings enjoyed by others, it was Jesus. His life from the time that He took on our humanness until the time that He was raised from the grave and ascended back to the glory of His Father was a time of relentless suffering and humiliation that He absolutely did not deserve. The temple that was His rightful place in the midst of His people was ruled over by godless hypocrites who accused Him of wanting to tear it down. Men who deserved no influence at all over other, other men mocked Him, beat Him, spat upon Him, and nailed Him to a cross. But instead of envy-driven resentment, every word that Jesus spoke and everything that Jesus did was driven by the love that drew salvation's plan. Even when He was rebuking people. I'll come back to that in a minute. Paul goes on to say in verse 4, love does not brag and is not arrogant. <laughs> now, bragging or boasting, that's a function of words. You have, to, you have to say something to brag, right? But the arrogance that produces bragging resides in the heart. Paul had warned these same believers in Corinth against the sin of arrogance five times before this chapter. And yet another five times he had warned them against boasting in anything other than Christ. Jesus is, is the only man who ever walked the earth who's worthy of bragging <laughs> about. All glory, all praise, all honor, all submission are due to him because of who he is and what he has done. 
And one day, of course, every knee will bow and every, every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, that all glory and honor belong to Him alone. But one of the most astonishing things about Jesus is that when He emptied Himself to come down from heaven to earth to take on our humanness, to live among sinners like you and me for 33 years, to be humiliated, mocked, beaten, executed in our place, He did not exalt Himself. He did not insist on the honor that was rightfully due only to Him among all human beings. He didn't even defend Himself against the, the shamelessly false accusations that were hurled against Him by the Jewish religious leaders. <laughs> like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. It does not exalt itself. And love does not demand its own way. The first part of verse 5 says that love does not act rudely or unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. And again, I believe both of those speak of the same essential violation of godly love. And that is that love does not demand its own way. Uh, Freeberg's lexicon explains the word translated rudely here in an interesting way. It says, when it applies to defying moral standards, it means to act disgracefully, to behave improperly. When it comes to defying social standards, it means to be ill-mannered or rude. Another lexicon says it means to behave in a manner that invites disgrace. I believe Paul, <laughs> Paul means all of the above by the use of this word. Uh, the old phrase rude, crude, and socially unacceptable pretty well covers it, except the problem today is that the, the, the phrase socially unacceptable has become completely meaningless. We live in a culture that has cast aside any concept of shame Six-year-old children use words that would once cause drunk sailors to blush. All of the basest and most demeaning things that people have devised have become the fodder for what is called entertainment. There's no shame. There is no threshold of shock. There is no softness. There is no civility. And if you as a child dare to take offense at the unbridled coarseness and harshness and ugliness of this world, you mark yourself out as intolerant and judgmental, as narrow-minded. But the God-given assignment that Paul is handing to us here is not to get other people to stop offending us. You know how much importance we should put on getting other people not to offend us? None. The assignment here is for us to stop offending others, including our brothers and sisters in Christ, over unworthy things. God left us here with the commission to speak and act as Jesus spoke and acted. And Jesus didn't say a single word that His Father had not given Him to say, and He didn't do a single thing that God had not assigned to Him to do. Read John chapter 5. Now, it would be ridiculous, of course, to assert that Jesus never offended anyone, right? 
But it's absolutely true that Jesus never offended anyone needlessly. You might say, okay, well, he wasn't winning friends when he rebuked the Pharisees in Matthew 23, you know, all the woes. But even in those rebukes, go back to John chapter 5, when Jesus told the Jews he would be their judge on the last day, he said, I say these things to you that you might be saved. His purpose in every word was gracious. Jesus came from heaven to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. And he started with Israel. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul says to you and me, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. See, being as Christ in the world means that you and I don't get to do and say whatever comes into our minds. In fact, most of what comes into our minds should never find its way to our lips. It means we are always thoughtful and purposeful about what we do and say, seeking always to honor Christ and to bless people, and de desiring that the only fence, offense that comes from us is Christ. And as we just saw, Jesus is the perfect example. We know how to behave if we look at him. The rest of verse 5, uh, the, the last part of verse 5, leaves the world's way of thinking and of loving in the dust. If, if unbelievers, or for that matter, believers manage to construe anything Paul has said up to this point about love in a way that leaves them unchallenged, <laughs> that ends here. Paul says, love does not seek its own. It is not provoked it does not take into account a wrong suffered. That's what you call countercultural. It isn't just unbelievers who find verse 5 to be an unacceptable expectation. Far too many professing Christians either, either killed this, this declaration with the death of a thousand qualifications or, or rejected altogether. Love does not seek its own. That means godly love does not advance its agenda. It does not pursue its own well-being. The one who loves with a godly love isn't looking for or expecting any benefit to be received from the one who is being loved. The child of God who loves this way is freed up to do so, again, because he entrusts his own well-being entirely and only to God. There's no other way to live like this. And not to any mortal man or woman, including himself, his spouse, his kids, his parents. Love does not demand its own way and love finally does not protect its own well-being. Because the one who loves with godly love is trusting God and not himself to see to his well-being, that man or woman is not provoked. This is life-changing. How many of you have ever been provoked? See, this is the difference between living life reacting and living life acting. 
When the one who loves with godly love is treated badly, even when he's accused of terrible intentions and actions by the person he is loving with the love of Christ, the love that Christ has lavished upon him, even when he is publicly maligned and indicted by those he is seeking to love, he is freed up to persist in loving that other person marvelously well on Christ's behalf without even a hiccup. Because he already knows that his own well-being is 100% secured now and forever. He knows it's already well with his soul. He knows that nothing in all of God's creation can separate him or her from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And he knows that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Joseph is such a marvelous example of this. In the end of Genesis when when his brothers you know, finally realized who he was and they were just petrified because they knew what they had done to him. And he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And that's all that matters. He said, he said I'm good. I don't have a problem with you. You're actually not that powerful. The one who loves with, with godly love knows that no created thing, no created being will ever be able to separate him from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8, 39. Again, if we want an example, and we should, if we want a perfect case study to tell us how this characteristic of godly love is lived out, we need look no further than Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23, right after commanding Christian slaves who have unjust masters that mistreat them to obey those masters for Christ's sake, entrusting their well-being to God, Peter then says to all of us, not just to slaves, to all of us who belong to Christ, he says, for you have been called for this very purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's quoting Isaiah 53. And while being reviled, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. To whom was Jesus looking for his well-being? Only to his Father. He's the perfect example. How does godly love respond when we who bear that love are dishonored, abused, mistreated, even to the point of a humiliating death? Brothers and sisters, we respond in a revolutionary way. We respond without any effort to protect or to vindicate ourselves. Without any effort to lay hold of well-being for ourselves. Why? Because there is nothing in this creation that will ever threaten our well-being. Ever. Certainly not physical death. That's just a quick track to glory. It's because this calling is because God intends for us to trust Him alone with our well-being. Jesus said in Matthew 5.44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So you might be like Him. Because that's what He did for you. 
God demonstrates His love toward us in that we were, while we were what? We were enemies. Sinners. Christ died for us. The last thing Paul says in verse 5 is perhaps the greatest challenge that we find in, in verses 4 and 5, and that is that, that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The, the translation take into account is entirely fitting here. The same word that Paul uses in Romans 4-5 when he speaks of righteousness being credited to the account of the one who believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. Um, I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4 together to get the context. Listen. Now, the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. See, when, when a person trusts in the atoning sacrifice and the perfect righteousness of Jesus as his only merit in the eyes of God, God credits that same perfect righteousness to that person. And it's not his righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And he, cred he credits that righteousness to that person's account forever. Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 13.5 is that godly love, when it comes to crediting things to people's account, godly love does not keep accounts of evils done against it. Our ledger of wrongs done against us is perpetually blank. What would that do for our relationships? Just think about this, guys. What, what would it do for your relationships if, if the ledger that you keep of wrongs done against you was constantly blank? This does not mean that love never rebukes or never declares sin to be sin. Again, Matthew 23, Jesus raked the Pharisees over the coals for their hypocrisy. In Matthew 16, when Peter flatly refused to accept that Jesus came to die, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. In John 16, Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And, and beloved, as the bearers of the Holy Spirit in the world, you and I should expect... God to use us to speak convicting words to people who are enslaved to sin in order that they will realize their desperate need for the one and only Savior by God's grace. But calling sin, sin is not the same thing as keeping account of wrongs done against us. Godly love doesn't keep those accounts. Godly love doesn't hold on to any wrong done by a fellow sinner against self. It delights in forgiving and restoring because it has been forgiven and restored. We have been forgiven and restored by our Master and Savior. Again, Jesus is our perfect example of the things that He requires of us. <laughs> Almost done here. As Jesus was hanging on the cross with His lifeblood falling to the ground to pay the eternal debt of my sin and yours, he said to his father, Father, forgive them if they do not know what they are doing. In Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen, the very first deacon identified in the Bible, a man 
full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, was given the privilege of following his Savior's example all the way to the point of death for his Savior's sake. As Stephen was being stoned to death by the, the Jewish religious leaders for proclaiming the truth about Israel and God and Christ, as he drew his last breath, he said, Father, do not hold this against them. His ledger was blank. Paul, the man who wrote this unparalleled treatise on the nature of godly love, was there at Stephen's execution. And he was on the wrong side. His name was still Saul at that point. Saul's life work back then was the antithesis of godly love. His zealous pursuit was smoking out Christians so that they could be brought before the Jewish authorities and hopefully, as he saw it, hopefully executed. Just as Stephen was executed that day. Paul looked on approvingly as the stoning of Stephen occurred while he watched over the cloaks of those who actually cast the stones. Paul heard Stephen speak those words of amazing love for his own executioners to his heavenly Father. Purely and only by the amazing grace of God Paul came to know and to proclaim and to live out the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of God that surpasses knowing. Brothers and sisters, until our last breath, it's never too late to begin loving others as we have been loved by Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. If He doesn't do it, it won't happen. That means we need to fall down on our knees continually and pray and depend on Him to do His good work in us and through us. He loves to make us good lovers. Dear Father, we, we pray that this passage would have its powerful work in our hearts according to Your kind intention. This is, this is indeed a revolutionary way of living. I know that word gets abused, but it's, it's completely true here. Or give us the humility to be transformed by the incomparable love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask this in His precious name and for His sake. Amen.